0: Hello and welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice Podcast. My name is Ralph Cree and this is brought to you in association with BodyHeartMindSpirit.co.uk. In this episode I talk to Sally Adnams-Jones who is a therapist who is passionate about human transformation particularly through creativity. Um, she grew up in uh, Africa in the city of Durban and she currently lives in uh, Canada and she um, She studied human transformation with several of the great Indian gurus who moved to America and some very interesting American gurus too. Um, She did a postgraduate work in transformative yoga education and she was the director of a residential yoga education center and a teacher of transformative art education at university. She's written uh, a book and is currently writing a book. So the book she's written is called Art Making with Refugees and Survivors, Creative and Transformative Responses to Trauma After Natural Disasters, War and Other Crisis. And the what our conversation was about today was her current book that she's been researching. Um, uh, well, she's been researching it her whole life through her practice, um, but it's called Integral Taoism and It's um, kind of bringing together of lots of the world's traditions um, and uh, the practice of duality, sacred duality, I suppose you could call it, um, and non-duality. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Sally Adnams-Jones. Um, welcome to the Evolving Spiritual Practice podcast.
1: Thanks, Ralph. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. When you approached me and said that you'd been a creative your whole life, I, I get excited to talk to people who feel that and express that in their lives and give it value. So here I am to talk about that with you.
0: Yeah, cool. So we're, we're going to talk about being a creative person and what that and spiritual practice and and biases towards different things, and, and also uh, tying that in with integral Taoism, which is a, a book you're writing and researching at the moment, um, and, uh, you know, in a kind of free flowing way. Um, and for those listening, um, yes, yeah, it's been a while since I've done a podcast, um, but I'm back, I've been moving house, um, and life's been pretty hectic. And where, where are you joining us from? at the moment today?
1: So I live on a beautiful island on the west coast of Canada. It's just north of Seattle and it's huge. It's about the size of England and only has about a million people. So it's really um, pristine and beautiful. It's mountains and ocean and I have wildlife living in my backyard. Elk, wolves, bear, deer, cougars. So I moved here specifically Um, so that I could have a studio space and continue to do my own creative life as well as be in nature and start to hear what wants to come through me. So I'm a grandmother now. I've been a psychotherapist and a creative my whole life. And so I'm moving into my final stages, which I would call eldership, and I really want to dedicate this next 20 years to sharing what I've learned over my life. And I feel I can do it out here in nature, beyond yeah. the concrete.
0: <laughs> cool. Yeah, I yeah. live in, a, in quite a natural place as well. You know, kind of not quite as wild as, um, as, the, as can- you know, Canada. Uh, England's a bit tamer. But all the birds here have got these very kind of light, beautiful, melodic, um, sounds. so I had my cousin came over from Australia and she said the bird is much harsher in uh, in Australia. When she comes back here, it's so kind of like delicate and ornate and frilly. It's um, the countryside here. I love got your songbirds. Yeah, your
1: songbirds, Ralph, are amazing. I don't have right. any here, so I actually went into grief for a while because right. conifers don't support birds, birdsong, or yeah, songbirds. Mm-hmm. They only support raptors. So I get it. And when I come to Britain, I'm always hearing the bird songs.
0: Yeah, it is beautiful. Yeah, yeah I, I lived in um, London for a while and I actually used to take recordings of it and lie with my headphones on in the dark, you know. Yeah. So if we start with the kind of Taoist stuff, um, you know, what, how would you say, so, you know, this has been a recent, well, I mean, you've been interested in Taoism for a long time. Um, but you've, you've had this particularly re- uh, intense research period recently, up to writing this book, and you're about to put this out into the world. Um, and you know, what would you, what would be your shortest definition of what Taoism is, just for a start?
1: So this this is something that's been emerging through my life. Let me step back a little bit and say that I'm going to show you this other book that came out through me, Art Making with Refugees and Survivors of Global Disaster. So, my life started out focusing on how creativity heals trauma, specifically. Uh, And my PhD was in how creative acts transform us. So, this has been emerging through my life career, and slowly it's becoming apparent to me That when we move beyond just using creativity for self-expression or for healing and we start to understand it as an identity, that we're actually a fractal of the universe that is itself intrinsically creative. That begins to change everything. When it becomes imperative to become and express your creativity because you're part of an evolving universe, the paradigm starts to open up. So integral Taoism has been coming into my awareness as a maturation of my understanding of creativity itself. And so how I would describe it, moving beyond these therapeutic paradigms, it's much bigger than this. Um, because it includes recognizing that we belong in a creative universe and that this body is an instrument of emergence itself. That changes your whole life. And so I'm calling it integral Taoism because I'm also well aware of a whole um, beautiful diversity of religious practices. I've come up through Tantra as a yoga educator. I have a master's in transformative education through yoga practices through a Hindu university. So I'm steeped in that literature. I'm also, I went to China and I had a very profound experience in Beijing with a Taoist master who changed my life forever through an experiential experience. Um, I'm also integrally informed. So if your listeners are aware of some of the new teachings around um, philosophy and psychology that were brought to our remembrance through one of America's greatest philosophers, Ken Wilber, I'm also deeply steeped in what we call evolutionary spirituality that is emerging through a couple of teachers in North America Um, So I have this general awareness of what's happening at the forefront of philosophy and psychology, and I'm bringing all those understandings together into a map of – it's a mystical map, but it's steeped in science, so it brings the best of our traditions, the spiritual traditions, and the greatest wisdom we have, what are the essential perennial philosophies that are 3,000 years old with the best of science with the best of psychology and the emerging philosophies so that was a lot of work I'm now a grandmother it's taken me a whole lifetime to see this pattern Uh, I call it integral because it's integrating all those disciplines And I call it Taoism because it's an experiential embodied practice of opening up to emergence through our body. That sounds a lot, Ralph, but that's what it
0: is. (laughs) And what so, you know, when people think of Taoism normally, they're kind of thinking like, okay. when I think of Taoism, I'm thinking of health and longevity practices and qigong and you know people in the mountains um uh, you know like living the natural way and yin and yang symbol um you know some um some sexual practices around uh, you know Taoist stuff and uh, kind of earthy chinese spirituality you know and that and so how does that i'm just chucked out like a kind of little little map an image of what what comes to mind when i think of Taoism, and um kind of yoda-like characters whether they're men or women you know and so what how does this integral Taoism differ from that picture
1: what i did was really begin to understand that creativity itself has some internal, um, some internal mechanisms that you have to master and open up to. So let me explain that. Because I found that they were showing up in all the great cultures, this balancing of yin and yang. So that shows up in Tantra as well in its 3,000-year lineage, it shows up in Taoism, And that's why I call it Taoism because I want to honor the Chinese. And the word integral is Western and Taoism is Eastern. I didn't want to call it Tantra because Tantra has a really bad rep at the moment. And yeah. American Neo-Tantra has kind of made people think it's just about sexuality, and it's not. It includes that, but is much more And there's a tradition in Hebraic thinking, the line and circle thinking, which is yin and yang. It shows up in indigenous culture. It shows up in literally every culture, this bringing together of opposites, polarity teachings. And it even shows up now in science. And for example, in McGilchrist's work with the left and right. Hemisphere and uh, it shows up in in any teaching that talks about objectivity and subjectivity. So, all the universities talk about quantitative and qualitative research, for example. So, this language of bringing together two ways of thinking or being, I track the provenance of, of that philosophy. This is why I call it integral, because it shows up in every single culture. So if there is such a thing as a perennial philosophy that we could actually unite all cultures, I believe this might be it. Right. Because we can track it in every culture for at least 3000 years, and it's emerged naturally as a metaphorical understanding of how to balance and work with opposites, Ralph. So the reason I chose the word Taoism is because in honor of the master I made in Beijing and also just because Chinese culture and Western culture, that's the future, needs to come together. India is honored throughout the book with the references I make to Tantra because it's right there. Um, jewish thinking of line and circle i honor that i honor the indigenous cultures of our poem and our darkness and light it's it's literally inherent as a metaphor within the human body
0: yeah okay so yeah so i got it it's um it's much better than calling it like polarity yeah. theory or something like that. You know, we do
1: I, have a long history yeah. of polarity teachings mm. and so i track those and even Those are now evolving slowly, but surely from very basic understandings, uh, you know, men are from Mars and women from Venus, that we've come a long way. That was beautiful, true, but partial. And so now what I did was apply the integral map to polarity teachings. So I don't want to overwhelm your listeners, but what Ken Wilber did was show that any phenomenon that you want to fully understand, you have to investigate it from four different perspectives. So that's objective, subjective, collective, and individual. So if you look at any emergent phenomenon to fully get the big picture, you have to look at it from all those perspectives, which is what I'm doing in the book on integral Taoism. So let me just use normal language. That means I looked at the brain, which is the upper right, the the physical material perspective. I looked at the internal subjective experience of yin and yang. I looked at the collective experience of yin and yang, which turns out to be kind of our gendered roles and how we've been stuck in tradition and how that's updating. And I also looked at the politics of that and the power dynamics, which I believe is at the root of the transformation that's going on right now in terms of the gender wars, there's a power shift that is happening as the feminine itself begins to balance with the masculine. And and the transformation of the masculine is going through a huge shift. So when I look at the Tao, which is masculine and feminine, I put it through all the quadrants I've looked at it biologically, internally, culturally, and I've looked at it politically. So I wanted to update those ancient polarity teachings, bring them into the present moment, revivify them, make them uh, make people aware that this metaphor has been emerging through our bodies for thousands of years, and I want to make it relevant.
0: Yeah. So it's, it's just kind of um, adding a bit more nuance to just having two poles you know it's so, it's
1: so the two poles yeah. show up in the four quadrants yeah in different ways
0: yes yeah. so you've got so on an individual level and a collective level a different kind of scales of existence yes. yeah exactly. and you know uh what we might call on the inside and the outside um but and okay so like what okay so what like my um podcasts reflects my own personal interests which are in spiritual practices and one's own you know things you do in your life um on an individual basis and with with other people and actual practices like different meditation practices the use of different psychedelics um and uh different philosophies that are psychoactive um you know philosophies that change you they're not just kind of confections of the mind you know to play with um and psychotherapy psychotherapeutic techniques that you know really get in there and and heal uh individuals and groups of people and even whole nations um potentially so you know what what does this integral Taoism look like say i mean if we it's such a big it it, we're basically talking about everything and i'm trying to kind of like focus it down into something so we can explore um uh, some of the focused areas of it so if we took a practice like meditation for example um we put what you know what would what would integral Taoism say about meditation in general um to start with as a a practice
1: yeah that's a great question uh ralph because i really believe that altered states are the way that we begin to believe in non-duality so here we are we arrive in this human body we're cut from our mother and we fall into separation and we enter duality so, traditionally, spiritual practices have been about trying to overcome duality in some way. So, there were a lot of transcendent practices. And what happened then is we begin to deny the body. Uh, we get what we would call really yang practices, which are all about. Um, almost, I would say, dissociative of everyday life. You go sit on a cushion, you practice emptiness, you deny the body, you deny suffering in some ways, and you try to transcend. Nothing wrong with that. It's an honored practice, um, but it's part of the picture. So that is kind of the yang practice, the yin practice. So I'm trying to bring yin and yang together into a fuller picture the yin practice would be you enter the suffering you own the fact that there's life all around you it's burgeoning it's creative it's bubbling away and you have to engage with that and you have to serve so you enter life so you don't just sit on the cushion but you enter life and you give back Um, so in a way that is bringing meditation and therapy together We have to, as Ken Wilbur say, you have to wake up as well as grow up. When you bring those two together, you start to show up. That's the creativity. That's the shift in identity to understand that you become a creative agent for change. You actually have the privilege and honor and responsibility to transform not only yourself, but your world. So you get off the mat, you do your work, and then you give back and you serve and you're an agent of change. So that's where the creativity part comes into this. When you bring the two together, there's an energy that happens. And that's part of the polarity teaching that I've been tracking is if you bring those two parts together, there's a dynamo that starts to happen. And it's generative. When you bring left and right hemisphere together, it's generative. When you bring men and women together, it's generative of babies. So you can can understand that you can create something in the world, you can procreate, and you can co-create when you bring opposites together. Uh, And that, sorry, Ralph, I was just gonna say, you talked about scales. This happens at every single scale of creation, whether you look at physics, whether you look at even electricity, the two poles, if you look at magnetic fields, if you look at the globe itself with north and south pole, when you have the two, you have warmth and cold and you have dark and light. And so biology arises from that polarity On the planet, we start getting life, and life itself reproduces through pairs. So on the biological level, the pairs arise. When you start mastering the human body that is then arisen out of that polarity, and you continue to understand you yourself are a fractal of polarity, you start to work with your brain hemispheres. You start to master the actual self through the nervous system, which itself is a polarity. Fight and flight or the rest and digest. You begin to understand how your brainwaves impact your creativity. You come out of the busy beta brainwaves into the more relaxed alpha brainwaves or the deep theta creative brainwaves. So let me make that simple for folks. This is an ancient teaching about learning how to come from love, say, like Jesus is teaching. How do you turn the other cheek? Or with the Bhagavad Gita, how do you do the doing from the being, which is its central core teaching? From Taoism, how do you enter flow? It's a physical thing that you have to master, and that is you come out of fight and flight nervous system you drop into theta brain waves, and then you can start to live from that place of flow. So, integral Taoism is about learning how to work with flow, because that's the way that you can begin to express what the universe wants through your body. Otherwise, you're in trauma states, you're in fight and flight, you're in separation, you're uh, in you're, an, you're an antagonized, uh, you're not co-creating. So this is a way to understand emergence through the body requires you to enter flow. Otherwise you're an ego. You can do that, we can all create from ego. So this is just a higher level of working with emergence. You, uh, all of us can fall into fixing stuff and that's beautiful. And we can do that often in fight and flight. Um, you know, So we're actually just reiterating the old until we allow ourselves to open up to the new that wants to come through us. So that's the basic polarity. The left brain wants to fix the old. It's really stuck on maintenance and how to keep things running and functioning, which is beautiful deeply grateful to the left brain because we'd have a broken world without it but when you learn about the right brain and its gifts and open up to that you're actually working with the unknown and letting it come through the human body and then you bring in the execution of the left brain how do I manifest that so without opening to the imaginal and the intuitive Our left brain just keeps reiterating what's here, fixing it, analyzing, picking things apart, naming, cutting the world into parts. So integral Taoism is about honoring the fact that this human body is an instrument for emergence. It has a left and right brain, the binary, the polarity. And we can also enter into polarity with others. If I want to create a partner I look for somebody who's a polarity not the same because then two parts come together and we make this great whole so duality is about parts non-duality is about understanding how to bring the parts together into one that's integral Taoism so if you just looked at that symbol it's got the entire perennial philosophy in one visual gestalt there's the whole and it's in a polarity, two parts, it's got a boundary, which one needs to know that there's a boundary. So the two parts operate separately. They also come together as a whole. Then there's the seed of the opposite contained within it. How do we bring that forth? So the light and the dark working together always or the yin and the yang, the masculine and the feminine. To me, whoever, they say it's Lao Tzu. Whoever came up with that image captured the perennial philosophy in one image. That is an image of duality. That's what we live in, the universe, how it functions. And that is inside our body. And we can actually learn how to manifest and work with that polarity.
0: So it's also a symbol of non-duality because it's one single symbol. Exactly. You know, taken as a whole, um yeah, you're right. It's 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 the most parsimonious representation of the kind of fundamental dynamics or or truth of life. It, it's it's absolutely astounding. Just just the, the parsimony of that that symbol. It's just um, it has no. There's nothing uh, unnecessary in it. It's just the bare minimum you you need to just transmit that and then you, you you scaffold on top that's the scaffolding upon which you you flesh it out with your own experience you that's know, so um, true yeah.
1: ralph because yeah. you know even in 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 the beautiful Taoist literature the the dao de ching is a single small tiny little book that contains this whole philosophy um, and it says if you try The the Tao is that which you cannot name. So there's that conundrum right there. that, That anything we speak about is a reduction of the Tao. So I get that. And the hubris of me trying to do that, I get the paradox. When you look at that image, that's not a spoken word. Which is interesting, the Tao is that you know, if you try to name the Tao, it's not the Tao. This image is kind of a metaphorical representation of that which cannot be spoken. And then we spend our entire lives trying to describe it, which is a beautiful human thing we do. We just throw ourselves against this reality. We try to name it all the time. The left brain comes into action and immediately we've reduced it so there's that, that we can never name the mystery. And that's why it's a mystical practice as well. It's a, an embodied state that goes beyond words.
0: Yeah. So you go, just going back to meditation practice, um, my meditation practice, uh, you know, the, the, the first, I, I kind of had these two things going along at the same time. I had uh, started off with, mindfulness and and those kind of things with a kind of early exposure to it um i then got much more interested in the T- tibetan buddhist and tantric forms of buddhism um later but along alongside it was um well so that that was very much a sort of transcendent part for me and really what <laughs> honestly what i was aiming for was to sort of feel like i was right down in the depths of the ocean and life was all happening up there on the top and i was just all chilled out and uh didn't feel any pain anymore um you know so i have I've had i've been addicted to smoking cannabis um at different times in my life and um you know i had a, a couple of years of drinking quite a lot of alcohol and things like that so you know i can recognize through doing therapy psychotherapy i can recognize there's an instinct in me for that kind of the untouchable state you know like the the kind of epitome image for me was the is the um the uh, vietnamese monk burning you know in the meditation posture just sitting there you know while life just burns around so there's there's that had that kind of um purely transcendent drive going on for meditation and then i then i got into ramana maharshi that kind of thing and vedanta and a lot of those teachings um are if if you approach them from a a, a kind of a naive perspective an, an inexperienced perspective without Necessarily being around Ramana Maharshi to explain it, all you've got is his books, you know, and then people's interpretation of it and those that kind of thing. Um, you know, can end up going just further and further out into this sort of naked consciousness, which is, um, as Andrew Cohen calls it, ex- just unendingly compelling. It's it, it's it, there's there's no end of fascination uh, with just being that and it can just go, 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 go. But alongside that, I had this um, love of psychedelics and shamanism and that, you know, much more. Kind of creative side of of, um, spiritual practice and, you know, I wouldn't really call it meditation. It's, you know, they're both meditation and psychedelics, both being altered states of consciousness, exploring um, and. The two kind of ran in parallel, so it's like I was, but never quite became one. And it got to a point where the 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 the, the separation between the two became unbearable, um, and I this was this was about six years ago or something like that um and I, I i knew i had to resolve this there's a there, you know I was, I was kind of working along these things in parallel but there was no the juice between the two was not happening you know it's that kind of um what we we're talking talking about bringing something something special happens between two things And that thing in between was not happening. And then I uh, got much more interested in the the tantra, tantric teachers, non-dual tantra. uh, Christopher Wallace, who I think is a really great teacher, and started practicing more of the kind of tantric meditations, uh, non-dual tantra. And more recently... A practice I've been doing a lot of is um, the Chud practice, which is a Tibetan Buddhist practice, but Lama Sultrim Alioni's created this one called Feeding the Demons. It's a kind of modern version of it, but it's. For me, they, these kind of practices. Um, so what am I saying? So my meditation practice has gone from. Being a kind of fascination at. Being formless um to now um, being the the letting all of the this kind of creative side um rushed you know, just rushed in over the last few years um and um you know it's, it's like the goddess just gate crashing my cozy little meditation practice and saying oh no, 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 no. yeah let me in let me show you some things and so now um, when when i'm meditating it's more like um, I'm, i'll use an analogy when you're a parent so i've got two two boys when you're a parent you have you have a child and their facial features um and the way the way they their mannerisms and who they are is such a surprise to you you know you can you can feel the fingerprints of both the parents in the child but there's something just absolutely you know i spent ages just looking at my children just smiling in complete amazement at who they are and so my meditation practice now feels much more a kind of balance of yin and yang, masculine, feminine, god and goddess. And it, the way the kind of shortest way I could describe it is sitting in with that same feeling of just amazement um, at who I am. And when I say who I am, I don't mean just Ralph Cree. I mean... The eye of this, and so that—that's kind of—I don't uh, know—that's a little just description of my journey to getting to being interested in this, um, because I think I was quite a yang practitioner, and also that my psychedelics practice was very macho, you know, high doses and going to strange places and and all of that kind of thing a bit more like a bit like a kind of adventurer going to the amazon jungle or the mountain peaks or something like that it was you know that kind of like heroic thing um and it 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 really changed um over the years and and this that's kind of like where i'm at at the moment um and yeah, so it, it's, it's a little bit, there's been a letting go I, of the way I've done things that, you know, you're kind of dying to who you were before all the time. And I uh, th- think there's a whole level of trust in a more, f- for me, a more feminine uh, type of meditation practice, um, which is new and exciting for me really you know even though i've been doing it it's been unfolding for a few years but so that's kind of my description uh of what it's been like for me to have these two things snap together and become in some kind of relationship um so the last thing i'll say is i think another fantastic symbol a bit like the yin and yang one is the consciousness mudra which is um they're use it quite a lot in the in the non-dual tantric traditions where you bring your thumb and forefinger together and it's the touching between the two and that's that's kind of a a symbolic description of what i just very very clumsily try to do about my what my experience of meditations become like nowadays is just the absolute fascination in that point of touching um you know rather yeah so you know, here we go. I just dumped a whole load of I wasn't expecting to quite, quite go on so long about that. But, um, uh, what does, I love you know. Know, is
1: your beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. Cause I think so many people identify with that journey of the seeker through various technologies, uh, all of which are true, but partial. So, understanding that as our consciousness opens up we require different practices so i love the way that you've noticed the endless fascination you have for evolving yourself like i just want to honor that because i think that was a beautiful description of of what we all go through of trying this technology trying this technology and and allowing our hearts to guide us to the next thing that we need in our life to open up so you started out with a very ascending practice. Beautiful. And now you're discovering the descending practice. Beautiful. Uh, and eventually these two co-mingle and we do both. As we apply, the skill comes then and applying whatever we're doing to that particular context as well. So it's not just internal, but also how do we apply that in our everyday life? So. You're learning through parenting the descending journey, which is beautiful. That to me is typical of the yin journey. Um, you begin to open up to this expansion to have more and more people in your life that you really care about and that you would do anything for. And you see the mystery and the awe and the beauty and the chaos and the mess and the stench and the hunger and the desire and, of human life. So that's the gift of children, is you fall into the diapers and the feces and the beauty and the mystery and the play and the noise and the chaos. That's kind of the yin journey. So you've already had this beautiful yang practice. You've got this yin one in your domestic life and they're coming together. That's wonderful. Thanks for describing that.
0: Yeah, (laughs) thank you. And um, so one, one thing you've talked about is through in other conversations i've heard you have that there are different phases in one's life you know that you the the yin or yang um become you know dominant probably not the right word for it but so you know he's just saying there when you have your when you have children it's a kind of that's quite a yin phase and um Can I talk more about that? Yeah, do, please do.
1: Before I lose that track, because this is the fundamental understanding of integral Taoism or any polarity teaching. So what you've described, listeners can look up spiral dynamics. I'm not going to go into that, but that is a beautiful map of the human life, the adult life that goes through phases and stages and they alternate they go through a period of emerging and a period of merging so i'm going to take that analogy a snake like kundalini it's everywhere in all the teachings it's even in the modern one called spiral dynamics the yin and the yang alternate it's an oscillation so let me describe those two motions which are a psychic need in us to explore individuation the masculine emerging how do we become more and more agentic and separate and powerful and um, how do we express more and more of our unique skills and get some level of mastery and execution the other poll is How do we merge more and more? How do we become more relational? How do we become more empathetic? How do we become more connected and include more and more people in our care? And that's through the family, the office, the community. Eventually we get a global perspective and we care about not only the planet and all sentient beings, but even our enemies. That's a high level of mastery. So there's these two paths, You could look at it as a vertical path, the ascending agentic individuation, the masculine. You could look at it as the horizontal, which is the feminine, which is including more and more in our circle of care. And we merge with our neighbors and our community. The feminine and the masculine is a phallus and there's a yoni. There's vertical and there's horizontal growth. So spiral dynamics talks about stages what they didn't notice was it goes from the feminine to the masculine that's what I brought to that map they they don't because it's mostly men talking about men's stuff from the left brain they didn't really notice that the alternative is always the merging that's the yin that is kind of in the shadow of academic thinking so I'm trying to bring that awareness back oh look at that map there's the alternative this is the balancing, always. Um, the snake itself is a symbol of transformation in most cultures. It's oscillating. So you would have gone through phases as a teenager. It's bring this to a really practical level of human development. You went through your teenagers of rejecting all authority, rebelling, trying to find your individuation, and um, finding out who you were often through rejecting everything in your life and trying to establish your own thing. That's kind of the masculine. Then you would have met your beloved. i will just
0: make a little footnote on that. Um, I heard someone saying, you know, this is one of those kind of evolutionary biology theories that part of that thing where teenagers kind of hate their parents and just become disgusted by them is uh is a is a kind of is an anti-incest urge like a, a an um an ancient biological imperative to get away from your parents so you you don't uh bec- inbreed but, um and I, i'd never thought about it that way because um, the
1: family is very merged hmm. so the teenagers setting a boundary And because merging can happen sexually, it can happen at the heart, it can happen in meditation. I wanna talk about merging and emerging at different levels of the body scales, but that family was merged. So the teenager's job is to break out of that so that incest doesn't happen. So the whole splits into parts. The kids go off, they do their thing. They have to learn how to individuate. Then they start to create their own whole again. So they went from a whole, the original family, to parts, back to choosing their own whole with their own partner. And they merge again, and sexuality happens, and more parts are made. So this movement from parts to holes is the merging and emerging oscillation. And that happens throughout our lives, you'll notice that. Um, you've started a family, you learned how to merge again you recreated your family of origin, there's beautiful communion, there's in-jokes that nobody else understands, there's bath time, and food time, and sex time, and, and and then the kids will break out of that. So this oscillation of parts to whole is our holonic nature, that Arthur Kussler mentioned that, and I want to honor him, that he noticed that our nature, every single individual on this planet is planet is Holonic in nature. You can be comprised of lots of parts that make a whole, and you can be a part in another whole, like a community. And navigating that emergence and emergence is the mastery, the yin and the yang of that, of your Holonic nature. So right now, you've got a on happening. Your family is a on. There's little parts in there that will go off and individuate. And you're also a unit. So you're both at the same time. And, and managing that is part of, this, of the yin and the yang. How much of distance can you have and stay a whole?
0: Yeah. And then when, once the kids leave home, then you have this kind of like, another kind of Yang phase where you know what are you going to do now that the kids are not there um with your like before you become really old and 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 then when you become very old you become it's a yin phase again where you become dependent on other people and you're kind of you know hopefully being walked off stage you know with People you love or people that care for you and and help you and um and then ultimately you you face death uh as an individual um but then once what happens after death <laughs> you know um uh we, you know we got it we've we've got lots of lots of um stories about what happens but ultimately you're just gonna have to find out but you know for yourself. So it's, it's kind of like, it, it goes like this all the way to the end. Um, there's that picture, but
1: there's also another picture that I want to describe, which is you start off really merged at birth. In fact, you're literally part of your mother. So then you're expelled from the womb, but you're still in this oceanic oneness uh, and you learn how to separate slowly until you're a toddler and that yang comes back in right there at the age of two like no is the favorite word of the toddler go away from me so
0: remember it well
1: yeah (laughs) every toddler you know has gone through that that initial breaking away from the oceanic oneness then if you look at your life you right up to midlife you are emerging like there's little waves of merge and emerge. But if you look at the big arc, you're emerging and you kind of peak at around 50, 60 with your power. And that doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man, they have different power. But especially hard for men, especially hard because that is the masculine emergence. They've reached their peak power. The midlife crisis is particularly difficult for men because their whole lives, they've been shamed for having any vulnerability or softness or gentleness or, um, yeah, we, that's interpreted as weakness. So they're at their peak power. The midlife crisis is all about, you better realize as your testosterone drops and you go through andropause, you're coming down, boy. That is grief and loss and pain until you reach old age and a level of acceptance that you are mortal. So the illusion of being immortal and all powerful for men is deeper and stronger and harder for them. So hard, midlife crisis for men, they often go off the rails because they're fighting with all their being that shift downwards to yin. It's yin, vulnerability, softness. And you return eventually to your parts in death. So you've you've created this beautiful illusion that you're a separate whole being without realizing you're not whole, you're holonic. (laughs) And you will return to the parts. So we fight death. We fight aging. We fight vulnerability. We fight weakness.
0: Yeah. My, my dad has become so much more yin um, he's 75 now and um, yeah and I'm, I'm 45 um, and I, I was so um, just coming back to meditation practice again um, in a kind of simplistic understanding of pra- a practice like meditation we kind of in quite a lot of the traditions present us with one form of meditation they say this is the way to do it and you do this for the whole of your life till you die this one way you know like if it was um let say zen shikantaza, it's just like you know the or well, actually that's probably not but the best example um Right, well, I don't know. There's, 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 I'm not even going to use an example because there's, there's so many, but it's very common to, to think that your meditation practice will have one form that you just, it's this simple thing you do the same way your whole life. But, you know, in the, 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 the journey you've described as this kind of serpentine um, in and out of yin and yang modes through your life. A practice like meditation will go through phases in your life and you know what i've just described actually about my own journey coincides very much with what you were just describing that you know when, in, when i was uh you know my late teens 20s and early 30s was a very yang phase of spiritual practice for me um yeah you know, i did a as I was, I was describing the kind of meditation practices i was doing very much up and out transcendent get you know conquering life you know getting beyond life and 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 getting above it all um you know these kind of very heroic psychedelic um journeying um i got into weightlifting and you know putting on muscle and becoming strong and all of that stuff and then kind of deep cathartic therapeutic work where you're really getting you know in deep and big releases and all of that stuff and then when i had kids um so my eldest is nine now so it kind of coincides with what i was saying about about six years ago i had this all of that came to a kind of it wasn't working anymore and it and, and and i had this unbearable tension inside me it was basically a yin phase and as described as the goddess gate crashing it was like you know no we're going we're just, just yeah just life saying we're going for, we're, we're going for a yin thing now you know so um and uh, so my meditation practice has, has changed very much over the, the, the last few years and and i will do uh, and probably until my my kids kind of you know fledged the nest possibly enter a more yang phase in my life where i might do the next dive into transcendence and it's like transcendence 2.0 or something um and then you know kind of move into a a more yin but at the same time you've got this kind of thing where as your practice matures through life um the, the the sort of duality of it becomes much more nuanced and a bit more like a, a, a whiskey or a wine that age that becomes more complex over time as it as it ages and the flavours become less sharply separated and they're kind of integrated into this beautiful mature flavor. And so the same you you, you People often talk about people becoming more androgynous in themselves as they they do these kind of practices where they're kind of working with dualities, yin and yang, through their life, form and emptiness, um, you know, um, power and and agency and communion, power and yielding, all of those kind of things As, as you, if it goes well, one's own development, those become kind of synergistically working together and not not blended um, it's not the right word harmonious is, is, is a fairly good word for it balance is a little bit insipid a word for it but something happens there where you, you're not doing the duality flipping but at the same time there is this kind of snaky journey towards the, the you know the end of your life as a human um yeah so what do you make of that do you know does that make any sense to you this kind yeah. of you've got the androgynous thing where things snap together more throughout your life as your practice develops becomes more mature but at the same time you've have this weaving through yin and yang phases of your life
1: yeah and i think the beauty of that is whether you like it or not that's going to be revealed to you at menopause and andropause so we start off the beauty of testosterone let me just talk about that the the masculine drive is to keep and it's this is beautiful and healthy to keep pushing and pushing to find where that boundary is that's the masculine drive is to keep impacting keep penetrating keep pushing and expanding um and you can see that with any little boy who who rides faster and faster until he crashes or climbs higher and higher until the bow breaks. So the masculine has to find that boundary somewhere and it's his imperative to, to keep pushing. Usually a boundary will come from the outside, like the brow will break, the headmaster will send him to, to you know, detention maturity is when they can put the boundary on themselves so that's the level of mastery is for example if you just want to look at that politically right now the the masculine which is beautiful and necessary in some parts of our universe has become toxic in other words it won't recognize any boundary so there's no idea of consent there's no idea of uh, limited resources, there's no idea of limited growth and sustainability. So that is the masculine principle that won't recognize boundaries. It's become toxic or egoic and out of harmony. So the toxic feminine we can talk about too is also has no boundaries. It's uh, totally merged, non-agentic, it's drama queenish it's just lost in emotions got no ability to execute it's 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 extremely vulnerable and fragile and dependent so how how do we navigate this as you say towards health so the polarity at its extremes is toxic and we can navigate these towards a, a better idea of health when we see the Tao, it's both, but it's also got seeds that need to be developed within each. So health is developing your opposite as you mature. You can set your own boundary. You can realize there's limits to growth and impact and penetration that shows up as rape or resource stripping or, you know, so... People maturity. even
0: call it. They even call it uh, them call uh, negative externalities, right? You know of the, um, you know the the damage to the planet. The, exactly. The, the, yeah. So this that that kind of boundary. It's, Elon Musk. Yeah.
1: We're just yeah. gonna keep colonizing and penetrating space. The planet's not big enough for me. I'm mm. just gonna keep colonizing and land grabbing, and nobody's gonna stop me. Beautiful but when it's got no boundaries it's toxic anyway and so the feminine also has to come out of being merged and get some boundaries and say no this is my body this is my time this is whatever so health is coming into that balance and eventually at midlife your testosterone drops away which was the illusion that you are all powerful and have no boundaries And estrogen falls away, which means, oh, I can suddenly assert my boundaries. I'm not lost in the family. I'm I'm now going to emerge. So the androgyneity will happen. It's beautiful, whether we like it or not. And at that point, men and women become almost similar. Men yin down, women yang up, and there's this new freedom and relationship. Often, sadly, you get divorced at that point because one or other partner can't accept that usually the man finds it really difficult to accept that yin is going to happen to him whether he likes it or not and his partner is suddenly more yang like that's really disturbing anyway if we can navigate that we come into a new partnership so that marriage has happened within ourselves the yin and the yang our brain is integrated um we become much more balanced. That's why an elder is supposed to be wise because they have both the objectivity and the subjectivity. Um, Yeah. So that sign shows there's always a boundary but there's always uh, seeds of the opposite. So those bloom. And at that point, I think non-duality is truly accessible
0: yeah delivered hormonally
1: <laughs> whether we like it or not there's yeah. humility in that
0: i'd l- I, um if you wouldn't mind uh, i'd love it if you could um um flesh out a bit what andropause is because you know menopause i mean you know uh women you know my peers um you know my kind of age are just kind of experiencing perimenopause um stuff and so it's kind of like a a topic of conversation um for in my life at the moment with the people around me and you know menopause is not really something i ever talked about with my mum um when i was a kid and it's only you know fairly recently become a thing that people talk about there's tv shows about it and celebrities talk about their experiences with menopause but andropause is like way behind menopause in terms of being a topic of conversation um in culture i mean like the i'm a relatively clued up person about things but when i heard you in, in a talk i listened to in preparation for this one you use the term andropause. i'd never even heard of it before you know and it's like and of course the world of men traditionally has been one about not talking about things like that (laughs) even more than the women so you know i do understand why it's had a delayed unveiling you know in culture but this is um, such a critical
1: question ralph and it starts in the uterus so i just want to briefly describe that the the, the constant my heart goes out to men the constant shaming of men throughout their lives to become more and more masculine and to deny any femininity that eventually becomes internalized and becomes misogyny Um, so let's just look at that and that's why Andropause is so filled with shame men can't even talk about it. It's like it's a non-topic because there's the return to the yin. So if you look at the uh, fertilization and the uterus, sperm and egg come together for about six weeks. That is not yet masculine. The XY chromosome only turns on at six weeks. So you can't call that female because it doesn't have any gonads yet but that little fertilized egg is kind of like an xx it's a it's it's and if you have a look at the uh way that genitalia develop it's fascinating that's why men have nipples so could they don't produce milk but why would they have nipples so that little xy masculine only turns on at six weeks. So for six weeks, that fertilized egg can be either XX and expresses as XX. Um, So if you actually look at how that unfolds, how the the labia on a female genitalia can actually close up and form scrotum If you, I don't want to go into too much, but it's beautiful. So for six weeks, you're not masculine.
0: Mm.
1: Just saying, boys, it's nobody ever wants to talk about this. Anyway, at six weeks, the testosterone starts happening and you become masculine. It's switched on, it's activated. You come out of the womb and from day one, the male is shamed into not being yin. The whole life journey of the man. Manna, stop crying. Get up and do it again. Just, it's harsh. My heart breaks for men. So their masculinity is built out of shame on the playground, by the coaches, by the dad, even by the mom. Um, And so you're forged into this being that isn't allowed to feel. It has to be performative. It has to break barriers. Um, Until by midlife, the corporate executive has accomplished everything it was told it ought to be uh, success. It's it's found power. It's found status. It's found consumer goods. It's provided. Um, It did its job at great cost. Men don't live as long as women Uh, and there's trauma. So the entire yin part of the man has gone into shadow for a man. And when that's expressed it's misogyny because he himself has been shamed and hated for anything yin uh, and that gets projected onto women. So the sooner we allow our men to be a bit more yin the better for the whole of culture. Anyway, so at 50, suddenly, there's no more avoiding the true nature. The Tao itself, in the book, The Tao Te Ching, says that everybody needs to be yin, that's our primary nature is being, the doing and the yang needs to be carefully selected when we apply that. So yang is just in response to context. That health is yin for everybody. Just like that six weeks. That's our primary nature. So then we go through life emerging to become more and more agentic and individuated. And at 50, there's no more denying that our true nature is yin. And it's a crisis for men, built on the shame, lifetime of shame. Yeah. So we don't talk about andropause. It's like literally so painful for men to understand their testosterone which was temporary it only came in at 12 it was borrowed and you did your job and now it's gone
0: and then now with testosterone you know you can be prescribed it by your doctor and i mean i don't know how effective it is if you keep taking testosterone you know right so you're kind of a hundred um you know but yeah, so, i mean, you, i'm you can... a
1: therapist i see men a lot let me tell you that that's the way men are dealing with their shame is pills yeah it's too hard to accept that sexuality is over it was temporary
0: yeah yeah it's like viagra and testosterone supplements uh until you die <laughs> for a lot of men yeah so that's men. denying we're
1: yeah. in nature and the fact that sexuality is just brief and temporary. It's not our true nature, actually. It's yeah. there just for procreation. And we get rewarded for that with pleasure. So biology is, there's always feedback when we're in service to evolution. So orgasm is intensely pleasurable because evolution wants us to procreate. So we get rewarded for that building community is like at the heart center, we get rewarded with feelings of goodness and love and oxytocin and when we merge with a community and build a family, we get rewarded for meditation with feelings of ecstasy because we're merging with the whole of the universe at that point by choice. So everything that's good for evolution gets biofeedback and that is unbearable at midlife to lose that capacity so we're driven to find that ecstasy some other way yeah this is not accidental
0: yeah one one thing um layman pascal brought up when when you were talking to him was the things that the universe wants to do um or that you might say the things that the goddess wants to do or god wants to do feel good because they're you know that's like the compass said yeah 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 more of that please um but they they can become perverted in yeah. the sense, you know and, and i'm thinking of say uh chocolate bars and cri- crisps and junk food and all of that stuff you know it uh, or addictions to whatever uh, drugs and sex and um, there's a kind of, I suppose, or addiction might be the catch-all for all of these things that where those things get hijacked, gambling. I mean, just it all goes. The, the list goes on. Where suddenly, what can be a can be the compass um, telling you when you're you're hitting the mark can go totally awry. And so you can't trust it. And I think, you know, and this and I think this probably um, when people get into spiritual practices and they've had addictions to different things in their lives, suddenly it becomes a bit difficult to distinguish what is genuine transformative practice. What is, when are you actually feeling the eros of um, the holy? Uh, Or when are you just been a pervert or, you know, a sex addict? Or when are you meditating for transcendence in the best sense of it? Or when are you just trying to numb the sting of life? You know? This is
1: absolutely yeah. critical Ralph. To, so we would call this clarifying your pleasure practice. And it takes awareness and deep journeying. So this binary in the human body between pleasure and pain, these things show up even in earthworms, right? That's the basic sentience of any living creature. There's the ability to feel pain and pleasure because if you feel pleasure you're drawn towards that activity and if you feel pain you move away from it and you're protecting yourself from danger so these are beautiful mechanisms in the human body that stop you touching the hot stove you pull away it's pain it draws you to do things again and again if it's pleasure so we need to look at when are those two things confused so In our brain we get rewarded with releases of dopamine um, and we tend to really crave dopamine so we have to notice if we're doing something an activity that's pleasurable it's a release of dopamine to avoid pain so this is the distinction so am i having compulsive sex to avoid feeling my life. I'm getting that constant dopamine reward and I'm so attached to the dopamine actually that the activity itself becomes irrelevant. You'll notice that if that activity is done at the cost of your life, it's destroying a part of your life, you know that the pleasure pain principle got confused in you.
0: And I suppose you you need other people to point that out to you. It's, it's, it's hard to discover that yourself from the inside, you know? Of, of Is there a
1: destructive... So in nature, there would be no downside to the, to the activity if it's healthy. So you can ask yourself, am I doing this in secret? Am I doing this even though it's destroying my kidneys and the liver because i'm drinking too much am i so is there something that's being destroyed so you can get your dopamine hit then you know that you've gone over the line Hmm.
0: but yeah one's mind is always um so clever at, at making excuses or saying oh that's not that that's something else and one of the things uh layman said i i talked to him a few years ago and um He said a kind of practice that he thinks is important is to take what other people say to you seriously um you know because we can create all kinds of delusions you know ourselves about what things mean and meaning gets perverted and you're you know you can justify any kind of thing you know it's like oh that's not really destroying my whatever or, or it's not too bad and um that kind of thing and and i think that's when uh, you know thinking of these quadrants and the in, and individual and collective you know you need to balance that out with a with a bit of collective feedback and that i suppose that's where shame you know we've talked about shame in the negative sense but shame is also a function where society kind of trues itself up a bit as well um you know and, and Behavior that other people can see is destructive. They kind of shame is one of the ways they bring that up into the light, you know. So that yeah. So um, this
1: is really tricky. Why we need to meditate and watch the mind and how we self justify the monkey mind is unbelievably clever. You can even use your yoga practice as an addiction. You can meditate addictively so any activity that we do even if it's on the surface holistic can be used to bypass pain it's like a numbing agent because we can't bear our own life so learning to that's that's another thing why the polarity of pleasure and pain to me is really a mastery for example some cultures and I, I shouldn't name names but some of them really are open to things like um, eroticizing pain BDSM kink culture even in our own communities and there's some things that are really healthy about that so this is a shadow practice that's in you know shamed by many but what it's doing is trying to explore the pain pleasure principle at a deeper level because they can get merged and confused as you said with addiction but you can also eroticize pain you can self-flagellate as a monk so you working with pain and pleasure consciously is a very clarifying practice and we should be observing that all day long what are we doing for pleasure and pain am i eating my painful feelings away that's my favorite i go to the fridge eat some ice cream and get my dopamine hit yeah that's an addiction sally go sit with the pain go grieve the thing let it move through you open up to the body let the whole body vibrate vibrating is very freeing so you'll see a dog shivering in the corner it's vibrating its tension away until it stops your diaphragm in particular is a muscle that can vibrate so it can laugh it can cry It heaves in orgasm. So really working with pleasure and pain is getting in touch with your diaphragm. How rigid is it? Have you stopped breathing while you do the thing in secret? Or is the diaphragm soft? Are you doing it with your community, whatever that thing is? Are you open? Are you shame free? There's a lot of metrics we can use to tell if it's an addiction or a clarifying practice. Mm.
0: yeah not an easy one and one we're we're going to be able to fully (laughs) unpack here and now but yeah that's you know that that's that's i feel that just gives people a start on how to get a get a grasp on this and um because it's tricky and i think that's where you know in in buddhism you've got the buddha the dharma and the sangha um and the the the, the dharma with well, the buddha being your own consciousness so it's it's like kind of my take on it just in this moment i probably say something different 10 minutes from here but in you know, the buddha being your own consciousness the the dharma being the um the, the the teachings that have been there for thousands of years the tried and tested manuals that you need to just keep checking against to see you know how your own experience is unfolding against that, and then also the the sangha is the community of practitioners around you, including your, um, you know, like I suppose a, a modern version of the spiritual teacher is they're kind of more part of the sangha. They're they kind of straddle that thing of the, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the sangha. That a, a kind of contempt, more the the more contemporary mutual um, spiritual teacher it's not so much just the buddha anymore the you know the guru and um, they're kind of in there with the people but all of those work together to kind of keep you on track i suppose um, and this, it's this it, it's really diff- in well just the last thing to say is that in the internet age and the zoom age where you can become quite isolated easily as a spiritual practitioner because it's so easy to get access to spiritual teachings you can go to low-cost zoom meetings with um you know great spiritual teachers and you can have a community all from the comfort of your own home you know and and, um and in a way that kind of more and more describes my own experience of of life and um you know I used to see people a lot more part of it is having kids and things that you know you get out less um you're much more centered at home but I kind of see it as a as a push post after the pandemic people being pushed more to this kind of atomized life at home in front of your screen um and you know the danger of that is is isolation from actual true feedback you know if you get feedback from people you don't like you just like flip down your screen and turn it off you know or um or you hide behind some kind of social media personality but you know i think possibly this could be a danger that uh, that lies more and more in the future as, as as this kind of thing happens is the isolation yeah
1: yeah ralph i think you've you've really put your finger on it when you've noticed that mental health issues are definitely on the rise and the more isolated we become, the more likely we are to fall into neurosis and cognitive bias and feeling that expressing rage is our entitlement and um, yeah we're very fragile and triggered right now more than we've ever been. We're more narcissistic than ever and yet we've got more consumer goods than ever so we have to Be really aware that hyper-individuality, which is the American way for sure, has led us down a false path. We're not well, we've got to be able to see that, the cognitive dissonance of wealth and unhealth that go hand in hand. So yeah, late stage capitalism has not been good to our mental health. We're fatter than ever, we're sicker than ever, We're more depressed than ever. Um, We need guidance. And that's the problem with the postmodern era, which deconstructed all the previous sacred teachings and said, let's throw them all out. We don't need church. We don't need gurus. We don't need sacred books. In fact, I've got no time for anything but sitting on my phone. This has led us down a dark alley. So the job of the metamodernist which is after postmodernism, which deconstructed everything and said, it's all bullshit. I'm a nihilist. I'm an atheist. The the new job of the metamodernists is to resurrect the things that did work. Refocus on those, bring them back. There were many, many babies we should not throw out with the bathwater. And yet throw out all the other stuff, like the sexism. I mean, it wasn't long ago that you couldn't even be a, a Buddhist nun, because you were a woman, you had to come back and be a boy before you could be enlightened. So there's a bunch of stuff that's no longer relevant. We know that since social justice movements. Now we've democratized enlightenment. Well, what does that mean? So Ken Wilber spoke a lot about flatland, um, how in the move towards social justice, we said, everybody's the same. Well, actually, that's not true. There are, and he brought back into our memories, there is such a thing as developmentalism. So yes, we all have the same rights, but there are people that are more developed than others. And so we have to be very selective now with social media platforms, with everybody sprouting something. All our throats have opened across the world. In fact, that's the way we're releasing all our trauma from patriarchy. It's coming out as rage, but that will pass. So right now it's really loud and very confusing in the spiritual marketplace. So we have to become really discerning. The beauty is we can be at home and find great teachings. Selecting them is a matter of our development. So this is part of what we call the uh, holarchy instead of the hierarchy. In the old days, There was a hierarchy. There was a guru. There was the sangha. And nobody dare question the guru. Now we've made the guru accountable. We've thrown out the gurus that have been abusive. We want the guru to acknowledge, I have rights. I have values. I also have a voice. I also have agency. So individualism came in and threw the guru out. Now we have to resurrect the notion of The fact that yeah some people are masters and some are not and it's your job to find out who's got the mastery and be able to open and receive without losing that boundary can you receive and retain your boundary and your individuality and work with those two things it's much more complex now as we get rights and accountability we don't give those up in the presence of an abusive guru
0: mm.
1: however i know i've met and seen people who are definitely masters and i want to learn from them
0: yeah 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 we say is this a topic that keeps coming up again and again it's like really current um how to relate to spiritual teachers you know um and it's I mean just a massive conversation. I've got into it a fair bit with different people on this podcast, and um, yeah, it's one of those one of those things. And you know, we're all just adding our own little bit into it, and um, we'll get there. But uh, it it we're in the messy bit at the moment, I think, and have been, you know, since the since the sixties seventies. You know, it's. Um, we understand a lot more about it now um but just just endless messiness just in all directions <laughs> you know? um so it's, it's a it's a weird weird time and i i think yeah you're right to, to say to point out that i mean the other thing to just mention before we get off topic um is that it's easy to become disillusioned with spiritual teachers and think well god you know they're all they're all like basically abusing sex power money you know and um in whatever ratios and um and then you also got genuine charlatans that are just con con people con men and women yeah so they just
1: replicated that trope but within a spiritual community. Yeah. So you've got and, to be able to recognise that.
0: And it's um, so say if if you know, if you look at all of that and the internet's a terrible place for finding out all the scandals and all of those kind of things, and then you can come out at the end of it and think, well, you know, what good are spiritual teachers and you believe that there are no real masters, as you say. Um, and um, there are people who are extremely proficient in all sorts of unusual skills, which are very, very um, potent spiritual things. You know, it's, it's just like in any other field of life. Um, and uh, it's finding those people is, it's, well, it's always been difficult. Um, and there's quite a lot of luck involved in it. And often, it, it, you don't you you're unlikely to get a just a perfectly what you think of as perfection. You know, there, there are people that, for example, you know, if you think about some shamanic practitioners with, um, ayahuasca or something, there are people that have an incredible ability to navigate that, um, state of consciousness, you know, they're like Olympic athletes, uh, in that realm um and but at the same time you're going to get other stuff coming with it and um just yeah i don't know oh there we go i mean i i just i just it's a it's a mega mega complex topic and um this is where the wake up and the
1: grow up work together so Mm -hmm. Wilbur pointed out to us, um, forever grateful to his books. Listeners should find him. He pointed out that awakening is available at any stage of development. So that's tricky. Mm. The grow up part, you've got to be able to look at the guru and see where are they developmentally. Not only with awakening experiences, because awakening experiences are states. I had states of childhood. Mm. I was... Childish, but I already had experiences merging with oneness. So, somebody can stand up on a podium and be very charismatic and talk about states of oneness. Um, And what is most seductive of all is projecting certainty. That's very seductive. Confused, lonely, isolated people, hungry for certainty. So, and you can emulate that sociopaths are really good at mimicry to biomimicry almost Mm. so they can emulate their own teachers that they adored and they can get the rhythmic patterns and their voices and they can make you a bit soporific and you become quite passive you lose the boundary and you surrender and give up to their power narcissists are really good at that and you can be in Experiencing states of oneness and be deeply narcissistic and an abuser. Yeah. So you got to measure the two things in any person you might select as your master: is are they awakened and are they mature? And for maturity, go look at spiral dynamics and see the stages of adult development. And uh, you really only want a teacher who's a turquoise. So go look at turquoise and see if that's where they're at.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's a kind of pretty neat prescription <laughs> for it yeah i like it well okay so i mean maybe just to wrap up this conversation it's um we've gone all over the place i've really enjoyed it and i i you know i'd written notes for this and we've just veered way off what i was what i was thinking we talk about which is cool um but one thing i just did want to touch on is been a been a creative person in terms of being into art and um, you know, visual arts music drama dance you know the the arts basically um and there's a kind of bias um in our culture and society towards in education there the stem subjects science technology engineering and maths um and you know which you you could kind of characterise as masculine or something um that quite in a very general way um and they're 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 deemed the really serious subjects and uh, so like when i think about education i we my wife and I home home educate our kids um, because our experience of being creative people in the modern education system was that we were basically told, "Yeah, all of that like drama and um, painting and all those pretty things and all of that is it's just a kind of um, waste of time, really, because you, the, you're going to have to grow up at some point and face the real hard." reality of life um and my wife and i both created creative careers for ourselves we've both been professional musicians um for a long time and um you know we made that ourselves we didn't get support in our education for that and when i think about my own spiritual practice i'm a kind of an aesthete. Uh, the the aesthetics of consciousness is what's fascinated me, and that's why I've wanted to just taste all the flavors of consciousness.
1: So modernity was really about problem solving and raising our standard of living. So a lot of the the uh, left brain skills were rewarded and encouraged and financially rewarded too, because that was the path uh, that we needed to raise our standard of living. So, you know, engineers were problem solving, lawyers were maintaining law and order, doctors were fixing us. um, So the, Ian McGillchrist calls it left brain chauvinism, Mm. is a leftover of modernity. So in other words, those masculine left brain qualities about maintaining the world as it is, were rewarded in the school system. In fact, at one point, IQ tests were given and all they ever men- measured were math and, and language, which kind of left brain. So, so the kit itself started splitting off at school, like, oh, well, the art room and the music room and the drama room are down this dark passage that ghettoized at the back of the school There's no grants, no funding, and I will become valedictorian if I do well at math and languages. So I'm going to split off half of myself and I'm just going to go down this path because then I get rewards from my mom and dad who say I should become a doctor and the school will promote me. And then I go into the marketplace and I earn twice as much. So this whole, this is the result of patriarchy stroke, modernity stroke masculine values with yin in the shadow and as Ian McGilchrist's books have pointed out this is why we find ourselves at the verge of extinction so let me explain why we need to resurrect creativity and it's urgent because without imagining the new we are not gonna be able to solve our problems. As Einstein said, you can't solve a level of consciousness with that same level of consciousness. So if you go into the marketplace and you can't even get paid to become a violinist or a graphic artist, or those skills are dying across culture. Um, Harvard, Oxford, blah, blah, you have to have top grades in certain subjects. And the whole status structure of only striving to become a certain type of person has devalued half of ourselves. So it's gone into our shadow, even in the school system. That's where it starts. Um, So if we are to understand the big picture of evolution, evolution doesn't just keep repairing itself. It actually innovates. That's the way it moves forward. So if we're not innovating ourselves, our culture is going to die. It's going nowhere and we're on the verge of extinction. So we've got to bring in and allow the new, as Whitehead said, this relentless movement to novelty actually comes through our bodies. Doesn't come from anywhere else. Animals can't innovate and create. This is up to us. So we have to resurrect that capacity in ourselves. What does that mean? We have to do right brain activities. We have to start valuing those in schools. We have to start valuing them in culture. We have to start rewarding them financially. We have to start reattending as audiences and supporting our geniuses. The one thing we also have to do is get out of fight and flight. So we need a certain level of safety. What do I mean by that? In cultures that are at war, there's no innovation or movement into the new. It's about staying safe and fixing the problems like a bridge that's blown up or... So there's a certain amount of safety and leisure that we do need in order to feel safe enough to access our right brain and create. So, we've seen that with cultures that have been very creative. Also, for example, in the Renaissance, how was that a flowering of creativity? Well, it was because the church supported geniuses. It was done selfishly, it was done to create paintings and sculptures of themselves or the Bible stories, or it was actually, there was a, a church and political agenda. But there was support for genius, so it flowered. So we've got to look at how creativity doesn't happen in a vacuum, it's cultural, it's contextual. You can have a really creative kid with all the genius available, but without food and support um, and even mirroring of the value of that talent, it doesn't flower. So. You can be as creative as you want, but with no outlets, it's going, no, it's not penetrating culture. The yang, the execution needs to be there after the imaginal. So the imaginal needs to open. We do a download from wherever you think that's coming from. It could be from the unconscious. It could be inspiration. It could be the muse. It could be God, whatever you visualize that energy to be. The body is the instrument. You need to figure out how to access those states. And we've explained that. Then the yang has to come in and we need to execute. You need to actually make that product. You need to penetrate culture. You need to do the marketing. So the yin and the yang are perfectly paired during the creative act. I know tons of people who are all imagination and no execution. They go nowhere.
0: uh, uh, I know millions of people like that. Yeah.
1: And I know tons of engineers who can problem-solve with no imagination. Yeah, So we need both. And right now the yin is in the shadow. This is my entire, if you would say, what is in, integral Taoism about? It's about bringing the yin out of the shadow and revaluing it at every level. Politically, creatively, in the actual body-brain mechanism that we've split off. We've split off from yin in the body. In the body politic in culture
0: everywhere yeah 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 well i mean it's it's an exciting time to be alive in a in a way although it's terrifying uh you know because we're every every generation is doing their they're doing their special task aren't they and um you know we're we're all in this thing that we're doing and um you know there's um when i think about the education to, to, of you know our children um at home here home am educating them you know there's all sorts of things i think which are really great about it but there i've also got concerns about you know things that are not going right and you know i think as a parent you're always worrying about the education of your children, wherever, whatever they're doing, you know, whether we're doing it right. And they'll be, when they grow up and they'll look back and they'll think about the way they were educated and they'll have their critique of it and it'd be difficult for me and my wife to hear (laughs) and uh, the the next generation, they'll have their critique of, you know, when, when, when we're really old and uh, we'll have to, we'll have to listen to it and take that in, you know um
1: but ralph you are so aware you're so observing of your path and you're so ethically motivated don't self-doubt like you're following your heart you're opening your mind that's all the best we can do
0: i think it's i think it's it there's room for a little bit of doubt always in in my mind i think uh i think it it, it, it keeps you on your toes um yeah but it is a challenge in 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 life isn't it and to, to not be overwhelmed by doubt um and then you get people no, especially like, in these people terms. like people like donald trump who just don't doubt themselves at all <laughs> very <laughs> seductive is, to lots of they, people yeah that's right well um thank you so much sally that's as it's, it's, you know we've weaved all over the place and um there's some some things that you um have unpacked that have really helped me understand a life's trajectory you know and um yeah my parents are getting old and um and i'm getting older and we've got kids and people that might listen to this you know at whatever stage they're at in their lives and Can kind of feel this trajectory of of, and 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 it's a path well trodden um and yeah and uh, so thank you very much and i uh, say that if people would
1: like to learn more so um my co-creative partner dr jen rich pierre and i have put together a podcast and We have 26 episodes that try to unfold this whole thing very slowly. It's a lot. So they can find us on on any favorite platform or on YouTube. They just go to Radical Emergence Podcast or Radical Emergence Conversations at the Edge of Transformation. So over this whole year, we unpack that slowly. Um, Visit my website, sallyadamsjones.com. Uh, if you want to understand the creativity stuff, this book, Art Making with Refugees and Survivors, is about how creativity heals trauma. And um, yeah, the new book, Integral Taoism, hopefully coming out in about six months. I
0: hope. Great. Well, I look forward to uh, reading that book. I have watched um, some of your podcasts um, and enjoyed it. And um, and there's lots of other interviews you've done on youtube and um and uh, people put your name into podcast apps you'll come up and yeah cool thank um, you so much ralph I really yeah. love it. it's been an absolute pleasure i made all the music that i use in my podcasts if you'd like to hear more of my music please visit soundcloud and check out my profile ralph Cree.